an early stage venture fund. This show is being recorded and will be included in my podcast series called Digital Health Investor Talk. You can subscribe on Apple and Spotify. This is not investment advice and we are not investment advisors. Um, first off, here's the format for the show. It's about 90 minutes long and Anne and I will spend the first half discussing news and the macro picture and some related topics. Then for the second half, we're gonna focus on our topic of the day, which is building a scalable health tech company. After, throughout the call, we'll be taking call-ins from our audience or, or rather uh, posing questions in the chat, which you're invited to do. But in order for you to do more than just watch, you need to register for an account with call-in. You can still do that right now if you're in the live audience. And to do that, um, you can do that on the callin.com site or on the call-in social podcasting app in your app store, and that will allow you to uh, ask questions in the chat. Um, the call-in platform works similarly to Twitter Spaces for a modern social audio experience. Um, uh, so, and with that, uh, Anne, can you please introduce yourself? Yeah, and thank you, Stephen, for reinviting me. I feel like Saturday Night Live, you know, I'm hosting again. So um, it's always a pleasure. So I, uh, my name is Anne de Geest. Uh, I'm originally from Belgium. That's a little French twist. Some, some of you may be wondering. Uh, but I've been here a really long time. Uh, I run two companies, uh, MedStars, which is my advisory company there, where I work with very small and very big companies there, and Health Tech Capital, which is a, a membership organization of accredited investors, VCs, and corporate VCs dedicated to the healthcare space. So we invest in medtech and, and digital health. So, so on the MedStar side, I started this in 1986, and this is when I coined the word health tech, so way before a lot of people here on the call. And, and, and the idea there was to really go after a market risk, taking technology from the computer telecom industry that was just emerging at the time, to go after a pinpoint of healthcare where the success metrics was um, you know, saving money, not necessarily improving care and outcome. And came out of that several big name companies, you can check me out on LinkedIn, but all in all, I got like eight IPOs, $18 billion market cap. So I'm one of the few people who has made money in health tech. Um, and, and so my frustration when I was helping entrepreneurs, people on the call, and I was trying to get them to life science VCs, they say, well, where's the IP, where's the mechanism of action, who is a surgeon buying this? They say, well, these are not my customers. Uh, because, you know, traditional medical devices, it's all about high product risk going after an existing market, waiting for them after FDA approval. So I started in 2010, Health Tech, tech Capital, trying to find other mavericks like me who wanted to change how we deliver healthcare. And, and so we had an organization around 50 to 100 people there across the U.S., uh, around 20% are physicians with a deep bend towards medical and really doing the right thing on the healthcare side. Uh, we have also 30% of female, just probably because of who I am. Uh, and as a result of that, we are agnostic to what the entrepreneur looks like. So somebody asked you, what's the demographic of our portfolio? I said, I never looked at it that way. So I went backwards and discovered that 28% of our CEOs are female. We didn't invest because they were female. They happened to be female and they were very good. So, so that's kind of, a kind of my quick background there. So I've been an entrepreneur. Uh, I've gone public. I've, I've had m and um, I've been an advisor, mentor, investor. I've been on every side of that of that that fence there. So, um, so I don't know if you had much detail you want me to get into it, but you know some of the name is Pixus and Omnicells and Visicu. These are all big name in the space there. Uh, I was also an EIR uh, at IVP and Canon, so I understand the venture side. 
I was a CEO during the dot com, so I went up and down like everybody else. So I had a moment of humility, which is always good to have. Uh, so, uh, so for really for me, uh, the space of health tech required three sets of expertise. Understanding the healthcare, the workflow, the payment. We'll talk more about that on the business models. Understanding technology, AI has no meaning unless you apply it to something that fixes a problem. And then more hardest thing in healthcare, how do I get people to change behavior? And that could be a clinician all the way to a patient. So we'll talk more about that. So that's kind of 100 miles an hour. Should slow down probably. <laughs> that's great. Thank you so much. I, I didn't know about Omnicell. That, that is the automated pharmacy cabinet in the hospital um, uh, yeah, yeah. So we took the concept of ATM, which is a remote inventory management for cash for the bank, uh, which is you, you basically you move your inventory further away, but you still have you know security. And we did the same thing with narcotics and drugs, and that was Pixos. And then we did the same thing with uh, with supplies that became Omnicell, and then both companies decided to combine supplies and drugs. So I ended up being a major shareholder of two companies who hated each other, which was an interesting situation. Uh, but, you know, Omnicell has been extremely successful. They're publicly traded now. And now Pixis is part of Becton Dickinson. And, and Omnicell is often brought up as an example of applying automation tech to a very high value, uh, you know, vertical inside of a hospital. And uh, so very interesting. Well, I mean, um, what was interesting about them is that they, uh, they went into, I save you money hospitals. Hospitals right now, are 50% of them are losing money. So you go to a hospital that says, I'm going to decrease your inventory of supply by 50%, and I'm going to decrease by 20% your supply utilization, which is roughly 1% of your bottom line. Every CEO of a hospital pays attention to that because their profitability is so minimalist. And so so that's why they use they use automation and technology. And at the time, we were using telephone line in the old days. And there was no internet. There was no Wi-Fi. <laughs> you know, we're using phone lines. But we basically improve our workflow to save money. That That's great. Thank you. Um, so um, I guess we'll move on now to our, our next category is talking about macro news. So I like to say that in the good old days, which was just three years ago, We'd have to think about macro news. Everything was just too good. Uh, and now, unfortunately, um, macro matters to our daily lives. Uh, so I guess, um, you know, a couple of recent data points. Um, it, the, uh, the Bureau of Labor Statistics reported that in December, CPI was up 3.4%. So that's the inflation number everyone follows. Um, and that was lower than expected. And that is viewed as that the that government policy has been effective at taming inflation. Once you get inflation numbers of like 5% or 6%, that's considered to be very concerning. And so getting it down in for the month of December to 3.4% um, was, um, it was, uh, it was, people were expecting lower inflation and this meet, met and exceeded expectations of lower inflation. So that's, that's universally considered to be a good sign that we were able to get some of that inflation under control. Um, and then today, um, I know that uh, Wall Street is is really, um, what, what's the word, really hawk or bullish on the idea that over the next two quarters, the Fed is going to cut rates by by about 1.5 points. That would be taking it from about 5.5 points for the, for the Fed's risk-free rate and taking that down to four um, over the next six months, two quarters. Um, and <clears throat> the thing is that high rates are serving a purpose and inflation is less concerning. And so the Fed came out today and they declined to cut rates. And so this is 
people are interpreting this as meaning that the Fed might push out its rate cutting uh, from first and second quarter to maybe second and third quarter. Uh, in other words, it will do it more slowly. Um, well, I, I saw and, a very interesting uh, presentation this morning, so it's as fresh as it gets from uh, from Bank Paribas. And what they said is that there's still some part of the industry, like especially the service industry, where pricing is still overheated. So manufacturing went down, real estate went down. So as a whole, the CPI just now is back to three percent. But they didn't. They did. They, they were afraid that we haven't done the full soft landing yet, and that may be the reason why the Feds are slow, are still waiting because the whole service sector is still a bit overheated, especially on labor costs. Yep. And uh, so, um, uh, and so the, the S&P was down half a point. And so the Fed declined to cut rates. People wanted the Fed to aggressively cut rates and to do it early in the year. And so the S&P was down half a point on the news. That's not a very big reaction uh, by the S&P. Um, and you mentioned the thesis of soft landing. So the best, so we're believed to be at the end of it, at the end of an expansionary period and the beginning of a contractionary period. And the best possible outcome of the economic cycle would be to have a soft landing. And uh, and so it looks like we may be headed towards a soft landing. That would be you know, the, the best we could hope for. Um, and people are pointing out that the government's spending a lot and there are wars and there's, spent, there's emergency spending around wars. And so that part of the economy is doing fine. There are other parts of the economy that are sort of in a downturn right now. For example, um, B2B and B2C software have been laying off for six for more than six months. Um, uh, and so but when you combine those together, the whole of the economy you know, is, is still growing um, and, and maybe having a soft landing. Um, so. Oh, so anyway, just any, any, any more thoughts on that? Do you think we'll see a, uh, will we go into a contractionary period or will we have a soft landing or? Um, well, today they made an interesting comment that the uh, inflation rate and, and the GDP have not crossed. And historically, if you keep the interest rate too high and the GDP start going there, you could trigger recession. So the hope is that, you know, the Fed is on top of this. And, and so that they, therefore they expect cut rate in May is what they were expecting and, and, you know, to avoid, you know, having the high interest rate because they were showing the manufacturing sector, uh, where really under, and real estate, of course, have been seriously impacted by the high interest rate. So we'll see. <clears throat> so, um, but at the same time, though, even though the SP is down a little bit on the news of, of no rate cuts, um, nevertheless, Indices in general are at near record highs. So the S&P is at a near record high. The NASDAQ is at a near record high. I don't think that six months ago or a year and a half ago, we would have expected uh, this to be the case. The NASDAQ is at about 15.3 thousand. That means it's up 53% in the last 13 months uh, or so. Um, so uh, uh, to be a stock market genius, all you would have had to have done uh, a year ago, is just put your money in the in the Nasdaq. Um, or or look at Microsoft. Microsoft went up seventy percent just because of ChatGPT. Now we have to see if that's a hype, you know. So I would be a little bit careful there. But you know, clearly we are bullish in Wall Street. Um, and uh, so when that happens, usually um, uh, companies try to IPO, and the way and we very much so. So let me just summarize what we talked about. So. In the innovation economy, which is young companies and the investors who fund them, um, uh, they very much want uh, low inflation, 
low interest rates and economic growth and stability. That's what young companies want and need. And so the recent past of high inflation and high interest rates has been terrible. And what we're seeing in general is a little bit of, of, of control over them, which is to say that inflation is down and interest rates are not being hiked by the Fed rapidly. Uh, and so we, we might be returning to a bit of a new normal instead of a period of uncertainty. We've had two years of uncertainty, which has, which has caused uh, an inhibition in investing in the sector. Um, and uh, so the, the next is with high stock market indices, um, there's a hope that we could open up the IPO market. And that would be a really great thing for the innovation economy, because what happens is that you have this illiquidity or this frozen nature of the entire capital chain from seed to ABC growth, um, private equity, a crossover IPO, all frozen. Uh, and if only we could get a bunch of, of, co of companies to IPO, it would, it would create liquidity. It would get companies moving forward again with their funding and investors who cashed out can put that money into earlier stages of, of the capital chain again. So we want the IPO window to open. And what needs to happen is some high quality companies need to go out and, and high stock market indices encourage those companies to go out. And there's demand by, by top mutual funds and buy siders for IPO product. Then they go public. And what needs to happen is the stock price needs to go up 15% and stay up. And if that happens, <laughs> then more companies will go out. And then riskier companies, including earnings negative companies and unicorn companies, will start to go out. And that's what we want to see happen. And that, yeah, that but, whole but, cycle... Remember, the first cohort dropped 90% in value. There are some ridiculous yeah. amount. And so... So I think the barrier to go out is going to be higher than traditionally just because digital health and health tech have been a mess. Historically, we had so much hype. And for example, people talk about Noom going public. Noom tried to go public at $10 billion market cap several years ago and couldn't. Now they just laid off half the company or some ridiculous amount of people there. And they have repurposed themselves to basically uh, prescribe uh, you know, GLP-1 drugs. So it's a new business model. So we'll see, you know, if the market is saying, well, show me several quarters of growth and predictability and all of that. Uh, and, and, and hopefully, you know, that happens. We, there's a bigger problem with, with liquidity. What's happening right now is that uh, typically a venture capitalist uh, basically has, let's say, a $100 million fund, and they plan to do 10 deals at $10 million each. I'm making my math easier. As there is no M&A, because there's no M&A either, by the way, strategic are all missing in action, and there is no IPO, they have to support the high burn rate companies that were in late stage. And so right now they're borrowing the extra two or three deals that we're going to do now for early, for earlier stage to support the existing portfolio companies. So we cannot get fresh VCs coming in for series A round because they're all busy trying to support the B's and C round of their portfolio. They can't afford to lose them. And we have to fix that because until we fix that, you know, people are having an increasing gap between seed and series A right now. There's nobody to come. Yeah, th thank you. That, that, uh, that, that, that's very interesting. Um, and so, um, so we're, we're hoping that with record index levels, we'll see an opening of the IPO window. Um, but, and what's happened is there was a much talked about IPO that happened just a couple days ago, and that was KKR's Bright Springs. So they IPO'd. Everyone's looking at it. And they actually sank about 15% on IPO. And so that's that's not a good sign. Uh, I think next up might be Waystar, which is a revenue cycle management company in health tech. Um, and it may still go out. And so we're looking for a few high quality mature companies to go out and and 
be a successful IPO, go up 15%, stay up. Um, and then um, uh, if that is successful, then PitchBook has actually published a, a report where they're saying that they think that in the wings are Noom and Row and Spring Health, Hinge Health, Headspace, and Quantum Health um, are, uh, uh, are, are in the wings uh, to IPO. So, but, the, but there's not a clear signal yet that, we, that we're going to see the IPO window open. So, and any, any more thoughts on uh, the IPO window? No, I mean, you know, I, I think IPO are very fragile and they usually, you know, open up by different sectors with different rules. So even if we have IP on the tech side, it doesn't mean that medtech and health tech will open up, you know, and especially because a lot of people uh, in, lost a lot of money in the prior cohort. So I think there's going to be more skepticism. We're going to discuss more about the business models in digital therapeutics, for example, is a mess. And so I think there's going to be a lot of questions of people to say, do you have a scalable business models uh, or are you still trying to figure this out? And, and so I think the bar will be higher for digital health. Yeah, and I think you know we, we saw a period the the, the era of the, of ZERP of the zero interest rate policy was approximately two thousand nine to twenty twenty one, and I think and digital health had its modern era it 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 it, uh, it, it was reinvented and had a very strong showing of I think fourteen hundred young companies funded uh, in digital health during that period, and it didn't really see a lot of shakeouts or consolidations happen from 20, 2009 to 2021. And as a result, I think there were many companies that found it easy to raise next rounds of funding, but they weren't necessarily addressing top problems for, for buyers. Um, they, they didn't necessarily have great margins. They didn't necessarily have strong business models. Um, and so Rock Health is calling 2024 the year of the reckoning in their report, uh, unfortunately, which is where those companies are, which were able first to raise big rounds at high valuations, and then over the last two years to belt tighten. This is going to be the year when it's not, when that's not enough anymore, and they probably they and they'll have trouble raising their next round. So, um, you know, that, that's very concerning uh, for the sector. Yeah. And that, that create headline problems, which is everyone is people are is that investors become pessimistic on the sector if all they see is bad news. So. There was a report, I don't know if it was Silicon Valley Bank, but one of those institutions there that showed, them, I think, more than 50% of the M&A, whatever little M&A there was, uh, is less than $50 million, i.e. it's an asset sales. So, so we're not talking exit, we're talking, we're talking basically consolidation and merger. And, and so I, I, think, I think a lot of companies have overvalued themselves. We still have a two to three year selling cycle. Uh, to sell to providers and payers, and they cannot grow into their valuation. And so, so what you see is that I think that Rock Health showed that 40 to 50% of the rounds were unnamed round, which is a nice way of saying it's a down round, it's a bridge, it's an extension, because you know, you know p- people have overvalue. And in certain cases, I've seen deals there that you know they have millions of dollars in revenue and they're being totally wiped out. Uh, you know, and so, so I, th- I think it, that's the day of reckoning. I think Rock Health is mentioning there. Doesn't mean they all die, but I think there's going to be a lot of readjustment. And unfortunately, for the founders on the call, the first people to take the hit are the common. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so, I have a, a, a now speaking of M and A, I have a somewhat optimistic thesis, and would love to get your reaction to this. And that is that during the ZERP period, 
Um, you had many companies started. We have many companies in, that are that used to be well-funded venture-backed companies in competing with each other uh, in digital health, and not a lot of shakeouts and not a lot of M and A. Uh, and one of the big problems was that that young companies had such high valuations. You'd have a valuation of twenty times forward revenue, whereas your your possible consolidator was a public company that might be nine times forward revenue, for example. So it was just a too high a valuation for a consolidator to buy. Um, uh, and it was also too easy to raise a next round of private funding and try to try to have the next capture the next growth spurt yourself without doing that without being uh, bought by a consolidator. But now we've seen um, the undoing of that. And so uh, private market valuations are down. Uh, some down rounds have happened um, and uh, consolidators um, are getting some in, in certain markets, consolidators are getting signals that that product buyers want to buy a consolidated suite. So for example, in the hospital, uh, hospital CIOs are signaling that they want to do enterprise buys and buy, buy suites and do enterprise buys. Um, benefit leaders at large employers are signaling that they want to, they don't want to do uh, 20 to 60 um, point solutions. They want to, to buy product suites. Uh, and this causes those consolidators to go and look to shop and buy, which in general, I think that the young companies want this to happen. They welcome it very much. The trouble is, is that it's going to be a buyer's market. The buyer is going to be selective and make a few acquisitions. And the example of this is the is Virgin Pulse buying Health Comp. I think that sent a signal in the employer market that it's ready for consolidation. So I consolidation has been low the la, very low the last two years, um, uh, and so but I'm I'm predicting an uptick in number of deals of 25% this year, um, led by the employer marketplace based on the conditions being right for consolidation and buyers wanting to buy suites. Uh, product buyers wanting to buy suites of products and consolidator companies wanting to consolidate companies to fill those gaps. Um, but so do you have any, that, that would be. Yeah. I, th I think the employer market is a unique market. So before COVID uh, they had a problem hiring people and retaining them. So having some special benefits, you know, for pregnancy and, you know, and, and management of diseases, you know, they, they were willing to do that to differentiate themselves in the hiring process or retaining process. Um, and so you had the best of breed concept where some of the big companies like IBM and all of that, they, they were checking companies, they put together a consortium where they were testing each other's and sharing with each other there. Uh, and, and, and what happened when COVID hit is that that fell down the bottom of the pile. They had bigger problem. One is how do you deal with COVID? How do you deal with the hybrid environment? But people don't want to come now. Uh, you know, initially there was some issue on mental health. So that was a hot subject. Now it's no longer an issue because they're trying to figure out how do they, have a good economy and depending on the on the sector they're in so i think what happened is that it become not an accepted suite of of benefits that you offer so therefore you go to the consolidator because that's what the jobs are they integrate everything into a, a, an employee portal and they have a list of choice and maybe the employer has a, an input in what's going to be in the, in the top three per category uh, but it's no longer, you know, the VP of HR that's in charge of it, or the chief medical officer of IBM was in charge of it for a while. So I, th I think, you know, they were the early adopters and they've not disappeared. Mm -hmm. um, very interesting. Thanks. Uh, so um, I guess that now we'll move on to a section on industry reports. So have, have you seen any reports that came out in the last month or so that are worth calling attention to our investors? The Rock Health report came out at the beginning of January, and I covered that on the last show. 
um, showing disappointing funding for fourth quarter of, of 2023. Um, but any, any reports come out since then? Um, they, well, I think we, we have to keep perspective that 2022 and 2020, 2021 should have never happened. It is a bubble that should have never been there. So if you look at the trend over a period of five to seven years, 2023 and 2024 are going to be on par to where they were in 2018. So for me, it's not a correction. It's that we just basically finally blowing up this bubble that should have never happened. Uh, there was a very interesting report from the advisory board I just saw last week. I don't know if it's public knowledge or not, but pretty much saying that the, the, the payers and the providers are fundamentally under stress to change the way we deliver healthcare. And, and as a result of that, they're not buying technology because it's cool. They are, they're under so much stress that they're looking at technology to enable them to make the changes. And that's to go from being hospital-centric providing all healthcare services to picking and choosing the healthcare services you're doing and then providing the rest of it for partners. That's where you start seeing people like Amazon coming in. You basically says, well, I buy one medical and I'm going to basically partner on some of those things like that. So you're going to see, uh, I think, a different way of providing care all the way to the home, but not necessarily with the same players, but some integration. So the tools that can help you do that are being looked for as opposed to uh, a new cure for cancer. Mm -hmm. That, that's great. Uh, so now we're going to move on to a section on news and trade journal news in the industry. And for our audience, by the way, if you guys saw any announcements in the industry or, had, or if, if you saw a report you think is worth bringing to the attention of, of the rest of the audience, uh, or if you saw a news story you want our reaction to, please feel free to type questions in the chat. Um, so we're still in a time where there's not a lot of fundraisers being announced from week to week. Um, uh, and uh, there's more wind downs uh, happening or being announced uh, or uh, sale of asset trade, uh, trade sale of, that's an asset sale, which is usually a disappointing sale being announced. Then there are uh, major new fundraisers. Uh, but I'll call out um, you know, a couple positive stories. Uh, so one is Maryland based a company health was launched. So this is a hybrid care company combining primary care and behavioral health and social care services to underserved populations. It, it launched with a, with a $56 million Series A funding from Venrock. Bob Kocher was the partner there. Also Arch Ventures, uh, Institutional Venture Partners. Um, so this was really interesting to me because this is another example of hybrid care where this is not a software company selling software. This is a healthcare company selling care. Uh, and hybrid care means that they got the efficiencies of online virtual care, but sometimes you have, it's a competitive advantage to also offer bricks and mortar care as well. And so we've seen a lot of this recently. So this means VCs who five or 10 years ago would have only invested in software companies are investing in care um, and I, I heard there was a study recently that, um, that there's, a, there's a question of will care companies be able to give returns to VCs that they want. So in general, companies that provide care, they don't grow as fast as software companies and they have lower margins than software companies. And that means it's not worth mentioning putting venture risk dollars into them in general. But what I've heard is, is that, um, is that, Healthcare is capable of providing higher margins than other than other industries. So you might have gross margins. Care, you know, um, uh, 
service and care companies might in general have margins of 30 to 40%, but in healthcare, they, they think they can get gross margins significantly higher than that over the longer term in healthcare. And that's what makes it worth venture dollars. Uh, so, any, so, and then um, there were some very prominent hybrid care announcements in the last couple of months. There was Harbor Health and Carbon Health. So it's definitely the case that a, a number of VCs have committed to investing, you know, uh, venture dollars into care companies in healthcare. So any, any thoughts on this trend or did you see any other trends in this announcement or any other thoughts on this trend? Well, I mean, I have, to, I have two comments. I mean, I've been saying for years that healthcare is a technology enabled services. At the end of the day, healthcare is somebody giving care about health. And so you have two choices. You basically develop the tool and you hope the care providers know how to use it. And we find out that doesn't always work very well because that distracts with a whole bunch of other crises. Uh, or you basically say, fine, I'm going to be a provider, but I'm going to make myself much more efficient by using technology. And I think that's where you see the venture industry has discovered to say this technology enabled services allow us to have revenue really fast. Because when you're starting to do the billing, you can really have a company with hundreds of millions of dollars very quickly there. Now, you're right that the margins are lower, but there was a very interesting report. I think it was Bessemer or Benchmark. I forgot which one where they were comparing the SaaS ratios of tech SaaS versus healthcare SaaS. And the healthcare were taking twice the amount of time to basically, you know, do the acquisition cycle, but they were having twice the margins because, you know, the, the market is less price sensitive than the tech. So I'm doing this out of memory, but the tech margins were less than 50%. And then, and then the healthcare SaaS margin were like 60 to 70%. So there are different ways of slicing and dicing this. But I think the, the, the venture industry has discovered that there is, this is 20% of GDP that is not working. <laughs> and so you just take a piece of it, you own it, and then you get people know how to provide care. And then you get all these technologies like we are. This is how can we do it more efficiently so that the physicians there can take care of instead of 2,000 patients, they can do 4,000 patients by having a whole bunch of other approaches to it. Uh, and, and I think this is, a, you know, Venrock and Arch Ventures and IVP are all fantastic companies. As, so they know what they're doing. They're not like, you know... Uh, a Korean group coming there and throwing hundred million dollars and hoping something happens. So, so I, I, I think it's, it, you know, there's been a change of the primary care provider models. People have been trying to disrupt this. There's no doubt in my mind that the primary care provider as the gatekeeper is gone. And you're going to see a lot of change in that model there. And which one is going to work is going to be more than one, one model. Mm -hmm. but um, that, that, that's great. And so we, let's see, we have uh we have some uh, some comments here. Um, the uh, um, so uh, just uh, you know uh, so Anne Marie is commenting um, that uh, you know that that there is a lot of opportunity in tech enabled services in healthcare. So that, that that's a yeah, good thing. I mean, I used, I used to joke this is not a needle or haystack. It's a haystack of needles. You just need to pick one that you don't get you know destroyed on. <laughs> Uh, you need, but it's a lot of stuff to be fixed in healthcare. So then the, the next announcement was Boston-based Valendo Health uh, was announced that it was founded by uh, Redesign Health, which is a very interesting incubator in New York, um, uh, and launched with a $4 million seed round with Dave Terry as the CEO of Valendo Health. So Dave Terry is a serial entrepreneur here in Boston, um, and they are helping endocrinology providers shift diabetes patients to value-based care models. Um, so th this is very interesting. I think this is a big trend, which is that 
in general, our spending is shifting from fee-for-service, which is the old model, to fee-for-value, which is the new model. And the old technology platforms are not going to make the shift, or at least that's my thesis. You're going to need new technology platforms to manage care under, under value-based care. Um, and that's a big opportunity. And in, in addition, interestingly, we've just had the possibility that, that the cost of coding software is, is falling. It's deflationary. And that's because of the ability to code with AI, uh, to, be more, to have more productive coders, hire a few of them, have them get more done in terms of building software. And so I think there's this intriguing opportunity for young vendors uh, to go after providing software that supports value-based care to provider organizations. Um, in, uh, and th that's a competitive opening as compared to the old vendors whose software supported billing in a fee-for-service environment, for example. So that, that, that's what I make of, of that uh, announcement. And I've seen a number of, there's a number of companies out there in this trend of software to support providers transitioning to value-based care. So Anna, any thoughts about that uh, company? That trend? I'm getting to be old enough that I've heard value-based care for 20 years. And, and we're still at 80, 90% FIFA services in this country there. And I think one of the reasons is that how do you merge, you try to move the risk to somebody else is pretty much what value-based care is. And so how do you measure that risk and how do you reward people for managing the risk? And unfortunately, if you're having hip surgery versus chronic disease management like diabetes, it's a very different criteria. So now you have put, to put together an infrastructure. Now you need to measure it. And, and so I had an interesting discussion with the pharma company because they had these very expensive drugs for cancer and they initially went into this at-risk contract and the payers went back to the old one price per pill uh, because it was costing so much money and there was so much delay in the payment to basically calculate these outcomes and then pay based on the outcome. So we haven't fully figured out how do, what's the risk, how do we measure it, and, what's, and can we have a business model that makes sense for all the players so they don't spend more money trying to figure out the calculation of the risk and the savings they had by going in, in these value-based care contracts. So this whole infrastructure, and now you increase that with different diseases and different stage of the disease, and it becomes quite complicated. Mm -hmm. It's an opportunity, but I think you have to be niche-specific and just take, that, to take one and, and expand. And so did, did you see any um, news or trade journal articles that you wanted to bring to our audience uh, in the last week or so? No, I mean, the, 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 big, the big problem is that people are trying to get back in-person meeting and, and people like me, uh, I mean, I prefer the, now the, 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 the Zoom meetings. It's much more effective. You have high-quality conversation. You can share screen. You're not in a hallway screaming out on top of everybody else. So, so we, we'll, we'll see how that goes, you know, but I think we have a change that's permanent here in, in the hybrid model. Yep. Great. So then uh, upcoming conferences. So this is just where we, we chat about what conferences we're going to, what's worth going to, for what reasons. And so for our audience, if you guys have a question about if you're thinking of going to a conference for a reason, you want to ask us, we can respond to that in the chat. So the first conference I'll point to that's coming up is Vive, uh, which is coming up February 25th to 28th in Los Angeles. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm going to Vive, uh, and so uh, I'm happy to, to meet with people if they want to meet at Vive. Uh, and so Vive is, uh, it, it is an innovation conference in healthcare that is focused on uh, providers and payers. It's a lot like health, except health is focused on all innovation in all of healthcare, and this is focused on 
providers and Vive is focused on providers and payers. Um, so, and Vive is smaller, um, and, but, and there will be very good VC representation there. And Vive, it's run by the same people who run the health conference. And I believe Vive is actually designed to be a HIMSS killer. It, it's, it, so the HIMSS conference has flaws and the Vive conference is meant to be a better conference for the innovation end. The innovation end is the end around young companies and the VCs who back them. So Vive is tailor-made to be a better conference for, uh, and it's also placed just, just um, three weeks before the HIMSS conference. So people will go to Vive and then they might not want to spend twice the money and go to HIMSS afterward. Um, but I, so Vive will be very strong on VC representation there. And so young companies can go there and talk to VCs. I think Vive is a little weak on, um, it, so Vive is not really a trade show and it doesn't really get the, um, the large incumbents and consolidators uh, to come. Um, it will have hospitals there, but it, it, it might not have big tech companies that buy little tech companies, for example, or, or other. Uh, and so, um, and so that's the Vive conference. I think it's I think it's worth going to. Tickets are last I checked two thousand six hundred dollars um, for the conference. So uh, and or, and it's in L.A., which I think is a first for the our conferences are usually not in L.A., but that's an attractive place to go in February. So Anna, are you going? What do you think is it worth it? And and what would people go for? Uh, I'm not going uh, just because I have a conflict. Um... But I, I, I think, you know, uh, the ecosystem of the big and the small hasn't worked together. I, I do agree that HIMS, you know, they, they, they bought Health 2.0 and destroyed it. Uh, and then you had basically they were making so much money on the Siemens and some of these other big booths of 20 by 60 feet that you had the basement there, the little startups. There was no way for the innovator to basically get above the noise level. I think it's a good thing that they get out of HIMS. I mean, don't get me in trouble there. Uh, so I think there is no, there is an open, there's an open need there. And I think the, the people who are running health got $6 million from Oak Ventures to run, uh, health tech shows, you know, and, you know, they have the money and they have the contacts, so they'll probably succeed. Um, and then HIMS, HIMS is also coming up, uh, and that is March 11th to 15th in Orlando. Um, and HIMS is a trade show. Uh, and so, uh, what you have there is, Traditionally, you had a good representation of hospital CIOs, and they were the buyers of tech. Uh, and then you also had the big vendors who sell into hospital CIOs. So Epic, Cerner, Athena, McKesson, um, you know, uh, uh, Dell, uh, other vendors, and then also young vendors, uh, young digital health companies that sell into hospitals were there. Over time, it expanded to include not just selling into the hospital CIO, but also selling to the hospital CFO. They included uh, payers to a limited extent. Um, and in my experience, you know, people got a little unhappy because you used to literally have a hospital CIO. Um, it, it wasn't that expensive and a hospital CIO would literally walk the aisles and talk to sales reps standing in booths. But over time, um, uh, the hospital CIOs just got over prospected uh, and they, they would either rent a room somewhere off the floor for for the day and do their own meetings and their own agenda. And so you'd be left talking to some junior person from the office of the hospital's CIO that, who might be walking the, the aisles. And, um, uh, and so uh, it's, uh, so um, uh, people were disappointed by that. VCs also go, but it's not as big a conference for VCs. Um, so that's, but it's definitely a trade show where 
uh, big corporate buyers of enterprise software go to make decisions about buying uh, enterprise software. Uh, so uh, anyway, so that, that's and it costs I think thirteen hundred bucks to get a ticket in Orlando this year in March. Um, and so I'm I'm probably not going this year. I don't have any clients uh, who are going. Uh, and uh, I'll, I've just gotten back from Vive. Uh, and so uh, I guess the the uh, Jonathan Weiner who runs Health and Vive it worked on me. I'm going to the first one, but not the second one. Um, uh, and so. Uh, uh, and what do you think of HIMSS for the young digital health company that sells into hospitals and medical practices? Should they go to Vive? For what reason? Um, uh, is it worth it? Are, are you going? You're talking about HIMSS. Uh, yeah, and so I have been in and out of HIMSS for 40 years. Uh, and I think, you know, most entrepreneurs don't sell to a CIO. They're basically, the last person they want to talk to initially is a CIO, honestly, because they'll basically give you a two-year selling cycle. And so very often what you do is that you sell to whoever is the champion. And that could be a physician, that could be a, a somebody like a nurse and all of that. And then after you got them to be your champion and you discuss the budget and the pallets and everything else, you have to deal with integration. That's when you get somebody from, from, from the IT department to help. And then some are better than others. Most nowadays, it's much easier to do interface than they used to be. I mean, people have developed this platform that you just plug into the ocean of data and, and you connect to it. So I think the role of the CIO is not as critical in a lot of the startup, depending what you're doing. Uh, most people don't do B2B platform in the back end. They do things in the front end. Uh, so they plug the data and they push the data back in there, but it's much easier than it used to be. You know, now we have the farm, the farm model there. So I'm not sure that, uh, hymns for early stage makes sense. I mean, so once in a lifetime, it's like, see, yes, you do it once, but that doesn't mean you want to do it every year. Uh, and, and so I, I think if I had to pick between both of them, I think Vive in the early stage, C to Series A makes sense. If you're dealing with later stage and you have 20, 30 million dollars in revenue and you're trying to scale up and you're trying to put pressure on the people to do interface with you, uh, you know, that's, that's how you may want to go to him to exhibit there to make the CIOs aware that you existed. So in the early days on Pixels and Omnistyle, nobody would interface with us. So we had to do backend interfaces and printer dump and all these other things that they had to do with scotch tapes. And then, you know, after a while, you know, everybody was exhibiting. They were, they were interfacing with us, but that took several years. So, so we had a presence at HIMSS, but that was more because we want to make sure that we had easy interfaces. So it was a different purpose than getting the sales. Great. Thank you. That's a great perspective on, on the differences between Vive and HIMSS for a, a young company that sells into providers. Um, so the, the next coming up is the PM360 Spark Innovation Summit. So uh, this is, has to do with the pharma marketing and brand budget. So in the world of digital health, some companies sell into hospitals and hospitals are feeling very poor right now and have, have since the end of COVID been feeling poor. And some sell into employers um, and some sell into payers. But, but one of the richest and spendiest budgets right now, it's cyclical, is the pharma budget. And pharma has a couple of budgets. There's the commercial, the, the clinical, the R&D discovery, uh, and the um, infrastructure budgets of pharma. And so this conference is representing the commercial budget in pharma. Um, and so this is coming up uh, March 25th in Midtown Manhattan. Uh, it'll have both young companies, vendors who sell into the pharma commercial budget, and also brand managers and marketing managers from pharma uh, will be there. Um, and uh, uh, and so, and I'm I'm speaking at this conference a, as well. So uh, 
this is this would be an interesting conference to go to if you're if you're a, a VC investor who's interested in that area, or if you're a young company uh, that's in that area uh, to attend. And tickets are are a couple hundred dollars. Um, and uh, so anyway, so that that's coming up March 25th, uh, Monday, March 25th in New York. Um, and as a speaker, I just wanted to mention to the audience that I have a discount code uh, if you guys are are thinking of going. Uh, so the code is um, uh, is. Uh, we want uh, to put it in the chat room. <laughs> yeah, I'll, 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 I'll put it in the chat. Um, the uh, so um, I'll, I'll get I'll put it in the channel. I'll get to that. So. That's the next. So and any other conferences, uh, Anne, that you... No, um, I have to do a plug for myself. I'm also an artist in my spare time. So my website is adegaze.com, which is my, my name. And I'm exhibiting uh, part of the Silicon Valley Open Art Studio, uh, if you happen to be in California, on May 11 and 12. So uh, it's called svos.org. And so anybody who is in the neighborhood, please come and say hello. Uh, that, that's great. Um, and so then I'll I'll just mention um, so personal personal notices. Um, the next digital health investor talk is Wednesday, February seventh, um, at four p.m. and it's the emergence of solutions aggregators. This is in digital therapeutics and related areas, uh, and uh, the story of what's going on with solutions aggregators like Virgin Pulse or Accolade uh, or others uh, with guest Michael Pace. Um, there uh, and then um, I have a Boston drinks night on um, February fifteenth in downtown Boston with guest Ian Chang of Flare Capital talking about digital health investment themes for twenty twenty four. And then I'm also doing a drinks night in Manhattan. I'm taking the drinks nights on the road. So Manhattan Tuesday March twenty sixth at a hotel in Midtown Manhattan. You can sign up for all these events and more on my Eventbrite page stephenwardell.eventbrite dot com visit that page to sign up for these would love if you're based in new york would love to see you at the drinks night on the 26th in new york um so and did you anything else to go over before we uh move on to the next okay great so the the main topic uh, and i know you you've done a lot of pioneering work on this very topic is building a scalable health tech company lessons learned on scalability and profitability in healthcare. And this is a particularly important year to learn about this because many companies managed to build practices in, in health and get funded for the last 10 plus years without being particularly scalable or profitable. Um, and now, now they're being told they have to shape up uh, or they're not going to get their next round of funding. Uh, and so maybe they should have listened to you from the beginning. Uh, and so why don't I turn it over to you and, and tell us, you know, what, what you mean by this uh, and, uh, and what are some of the, one of so some of the problems that companies face and, and how to make them scalable and profitable from the beginning. So, yeah, so I mean, I really have learned doing company myself as well as watching company I've invested in struggling. That there's a couple of key things that people need to really focus. And I assume on the call we have a lot of founders and entrepreneurs who have power to influence the culture of the company. And the biggest one is that what is the voice of the customer? Who owns that? And it could be in healthcare multiple customers. That could be the patient using your product, the payers that has to pay for it, and maybe somebody has to prescribe it. You know, who are the key stakeholders there? And people don't spend enough time understanding the unmet needs for each of them. And some of them could be conflicted. So you really have to navigate that. Unless you understand it as well as they understand it themselves, 
you cannot build a solution that meets their needs. And I think I see a lot of people with cool technology, but they haven't understood they haven't understood the perspective of the patient using it or the payers has to get some metrics there. So the other thing I see is that nobody buys technology. So we have a tendency in the valley to invest in technology. People buy a solution to a pain point that's a crisis. So is this something that's important? Is it important to the person themselves as opposed to it's good for healthcare? And, and what do you do for them? And, and so who owns that? And I see a lot of the startup, nobody owns that voice. The company has a product, they sell it, they get pilots, and they can't get a long-term contract. Because what the criteria to get a pilot are very easy. People have an innovation office there. They have a whole bunch of 50K grant that they can do to do a pilot. The people who make a decision for a multi-million dollar contract are different human beings. They have different criteria. And unless you understand who are the decision makers and what do I have to prove over time, not the usability, but saving money, saving time, decreasing complication, decreasing ER visit, whatever your value proposition is, you better start measuring that. And so that you have a way to basically have a sustainable, scalable business model. And here's the question I've seen a lot of the company, who owns that voice? And I go in board meeting, I listen to and I continue to like a broken record to say, what are the metrics of success? It's not our sales. Our metrics of success is what makes our customers, and it could be two or three of them, very happy. They're using it. They're retaining it. Uh, they basically mention to other people. They change behavior or whatever the metrics are. And, and so, so that's the first problem there. Who in your company beyond the CEO owns the customer and who, and who owns each of the customers? This next issue that people totally underestimate is that you think it's obvious the doctor should do ABC. It's not obvious to the doctor because he has 55 other things he's, you know, he's focusing on. So you may have to do a concept cell to explain to people why it is a problem. And I think we just lost Steve. <laughs> so I don't know. I hope it, I hear you still there. And so, so people very often underestimate that the early adopters, it's obvious to them. The rest of the market, it may not be obvious to them they have this problem. Not only that, even if you educate them, it may not be high enough on their list. So the company really needs to stop selling products and start creating market and start creating solution where they are the market leaders who people trust them, that they're there not to sell a, a widget, but to basically solve a problem. So that, I think, is the number one boogaboo I have. People underestimate the competition. In healthcare, the biggest competition is doing nothing. And a lot of people have ways of dealing with things, which very often is inefficient there. But the barrier of change is extremely high to change behavior. And, and so if you ask a nurse to spend more time because it's cool for the doctor, that may not work out. Really understand the workflow is very important there. Um, and um, who will pay and why? That is the thing that's killing half of healthcare right now, digital health. Uh, providers right now, they need hardcore savings. There was a study that just came out showing that 50% of the hospitals have negative operating margin. It's the worst they've ever been. They're coming out of COVID. They've lost a lot of money from elective surgery. The government stopped all the subsidies and they're in trouble. So guess what they are doing? They're shutting down the apartments and they're shutting down labor and delivery without talking about the Republican state. Uh, they're shutting down some of the ER. They're shutting down some services because they're out of money. So if you come to them to say, I'm going to receive you $100,000 for the year, they say, who cares? <laughs> I have a whole of $500 million or whatever the number is. So really understanding what you do for them and how can you prove it. Uh, right now, there's a big change in Medicare Advantage. Medicare Advantage basically replaced the employer market to be the early adopters. 
during the during the, the COVID situation there, the medical loss ratio, which is the percentage of your premium that are being spent to pay for healthcare delivery, had to be 80%. And they were below that because nobody was doing elective surgery. So they had all this money to do pilots, and they were really fantastic the last two years. That is gone. That's over. And then the government discovered these people were making too much money, not understanding a big chunk of that was the elective surgery that was postponed. And they start changing all the star ratings. The star rating changes means only 15% of payers have basically the five stars. That means everybody else just lost their revenue across the board. And guess where they're going to basically cut the expenses? It's all these unnecessarily support wellness things like that because that's the easy cut. Okay. So where do you, you find yourself uh, into this market there? You need to see where is the market going? The market is clearly changing direction. You need to see where the puck is going because if you're developing a product today, that means you need to make sure the market is there in two to three years there. So, so for example, I had the uh, digital therapeutic is blowing up as a space. It was the hot darling two years ago, tens of billions of dollars invested. And this is something that really gets me going. I do more due diligence than people write hundred million dollar checks. And so, so I talked to the VP of reimbursement at CMS and I said, how many national coverage do you do per year? Three. And then we're going to basically stretch yourself to five. This is five products per year that get national coverage. That means everybody else, which is 99% of the market, has to go fight themselves with what's called the MAC region, which are independent contractors that make decisions to, to pay or not. And we all know that you have to get a code, a CPT code, or a HICPIC code. There's different codes. It's complicated. And, you know, okay, then you go to AMA and the creator code. Then you have to get pricing for that code. And then you get coverage. Well, the little surprise that people discover is that there was before all of that, another trigger called the benefit category. And the benefit category means that you are a category of products, in this case, software as a services for therapeutics, which does not exist. And he informed me that it takes literally an act of Congress, and I'm not joking, it literally is an act of Congress, which is not going to happen in this Congress, we can't even pass a budget, to change that category. And so how is it that we invested all this money and nobody asked the basic question, which is, is there a category that's being reimbursed for that and how are they going to get paid? So you, you saw a big company like Akili, for example, who went public and hired all these people to go after the uh, the payer market. And within three months of launching their product, far half <laughs> their company were dealing with the payers. And they're now trying to figure a way to go directly to the consumer and get paid that way. So the fundamental question about who is paying and why is the make or break of any company. And who who pays for you initially may not be the same than the average market there. So, so I go back to say, you know, Who's going to pay? What do you do for them? Um, the big problem I also see right now is people focus on what they're really good at, which is I'm going to get more features on my product. They don't buy it. I'm going to add more features. What they don't understand, investors are looking at you to say, well, what are the risks in, in, for me in investing? And initially, there's a tiny product risk, which is does it work? And are the dogs eating the dog food? So you need some visibility and metrics like that. But the biggest risk, you know, especially in the health tech space, is the business models and the market risk. And, and so, so what type of milestones and things you should focus on is very different depending on the stage of your funding. So if you are the seed stage, you first have to show the product works. So kind of a minimum viable product, as we call it there, has some type of user data. And then you have a founder's profile that shows that you do things, you know, so you're not just a fly by night. And then you have the right advisors that at least, you know, will tell you some advice of where the booby traps are. At the series A models, you start getting into, well, what's the business model validation? 
Did you have any contract? Who pays and why? Do you have any reference that we can talk to? You get to the Series B, which is now really postponed there with the financing environment we're in, and it's all about proof of scalable business models. If you don't start thinking about the proof of the scalable business model at the seed Series A, by the time you try to get money for the Series B, and remember, most people are overvalued there, you don't have the user metrics needed. And, and the, goal, the user metrics I'm talking about is that who are the stakeholders? What is their problem? What have you done to validate you're fixing their problem? Why is the sense of urgency for them to change behavior there? And by that time, you want a proven team in place. And very often, there's a bit of a rotation there, depending on, on the stage of the company there. And, and so, so what I see right now, you know, why there's going to be a day of reckoning you were talking about, Steve, is that a lot of the people have the valuation that are the B round, but they haven't met the metrics of the B round. And that's when it gets ugly. So if you look at the downroad that's happening there, there are the C's and the D round where people were basically getting evaluation for things they hadn't done yet. That's where you have the reckoning. So, um, so, so, so getting the right scalable model, depending on the sectors you're in. Uh, so for example, if you look at Omada Health, which for full disclosure is one of my first in investment in the space a while ago, I was an early advisor and, and, and investor there, tiny one, um, is that they initially went into the employer market. This is before COVID and they went at risk. They say, okay, uh, you pay us X. And after 16 weeks, if we have 5% body weight loss, you know, you pay us Y. And then they build a data set. Then using that data set, they were able to get to the insurance industry that always wants two years of data anyway. And then they were able over initially to go into the wellness little bucket there, which is a tiny market. You don't want to stay in that bucket for very long. But now they have the data that the payers could validate on their side that they were impacting claims and they were impacting medical outcomes. Then they were being part of the medical claims. Then it became chronic disease. And now they just announced at JP Morgan that partner with Amazon. So the point is that business models evolve as you're decreasing your risk. So you go to where the entry point is, but the important part is that you know where you're going and you collect the data from the first guy to get you the second, the third, and the fourth. It's the strategy. It's not just, oh, I'm, I'm just going to get a code and somebody's going to pay me for it. You know. So, so it, I tell people is that you're in the business of market creation. Get a competitive roadmap and a funding roadmap and see this conflict in how you get there. So uh, I, I take a quick pause there, you know, because I could talk forever, you know me. Um, so, so before we and and so so that's kind of the key 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 aspect there is that too many founders are technologists or physicians, and they focus on you know what you do you know at the specific time. They don't focus on how do I build a transformative business there. How do I become market leader? I think that's why I was lucky in the past that we created market that didn't exist and it became billion dollar market, but nobody knew they were there. And what we did at the beginning as we grew was very different, but we knew what we were doing. We knew where we were going. We knew where the data we need to get to the next door to open. So. That, that's great. Thank you. And uh, so, uh, you know, I, I think there's a lot of, uh, of, let's say, software investors or tech investors, and they might have invested in Salesforce.com, and then they might have invested in Viva, and they might have invested in, in Medidata. Uh, and they're hoping to invest in say a, a SaaS company in healthcare that just sells to every hospital or sells to every health plan. Uh, but those seem to have scalability problems. So what, what are the common scalability problems in healthcare and how do you spot them and how do you either identify the right market or make your company scalable anyway? Yeah, very good question. So we did an analysis of our portfolio company and we invest in uh, 60 to 70 companies and we're 50 active. So we have some that got acquired by the, 
Google and bad guys, 30 different markets, and some didn't make it. And what was interesting in the analysis we made is that the product always worked. So we had done a good job of making sure the product worked. When a customer used the product, they saw the value. So, so people, when they bought the product, liked it. Where they failed is the team ability to implement. And there were two problems. The ability of the team to go from the founder doing the super sale, and he's the guy, and he has the charisma, and the passion, all of that, to bringing the knowledge on how to sell to a scalable uh, workforce, a sales force, or business channels and all of that. To ask a corporate partner to sell for you never works. I've never seen it in, in 40 years. So, so the ability of having an internal team to basically learn the formula and scaling it up with other people there. The second thing we have seen is the board of director blowing up the company. And let me kind of explain a little bit on that. Uh, I've been on boards. I've been CEO on boards. I've been on every side of that thing there. A lot of people see the board to be a judge and a parent and basically is going to criticize you every quarter. And, you know, that's kind of the, the negative image there. In, in, it's totally the wrong image. Uh, what you're looking for is people who have been through the wars before. We're going to be there as your partner to help you tell you there's a booby trap and a cliff coming at you and you're 100 miles an hour going into it. And you hopefully you can stop on time there. Uh, I see a lot of uh, young entrepreneurs who are doing safe and notes because they want they don't want a board of directors. They don't want anybody to tell them what to do. I'll send you an email uh, update in six to nine months. By that time, you're out of money and you're over the hill. So, so it's really important you build a board of people who are have experience, have been operators in some form or shape. You're going to get new investors in there. So typically, you like to do is to have the CEO and a founder uh, representing the common. You have one or two people uh, on the investor side, depending how far along you're investing, and have an independent board board member there who is non-conflicted because they have a lot of experience. It could be a physician, it could be an operator, depending on what your product is. It's also important that this, the, the board meeting is not about you telling how busy you are for two hours. So I've seen in this board meeting there where this, they give you the slide the you know, day off and you have 60 slides that basically tell how busy you are. That's not what the role of the board is. The role of the board is to send the slides ahead of time, have a keyboard matrix that has all the key criteria there and go green, yellow, and red. Red is the only one you focus on. And then you go to the board meeting to say, these are the three subjects I want to talk about. I want your brain and knowledge and the connection and the network. This is what the management team is assessing the problem. This is what the recommendation is. And then you spend 30 minutes with the board giving you the massive wisdom that they have and experience they have. These are companies who are able to pivot and change. It, th there is no straight shot to the moon in a startup. I mean, all my company, they had near-death experience multiple times. And when you're in the mud there, <laughs> trying to get yourself out of it, it's really hard to tell if it's going to be a billion dollars or a total zero. And, and so the important point is that you need a village and your board is important. So I've seen people who didn't want to use board and made the wrong decision by that time. You know, they went back to the investor saying, we need more money. Says, well, you have never partnered with us. We have no idea what you're doing. That's not collaborative style. Uh, the second one is as the company get new board members is to make sure the people on the board are aligned with the objective of the company. If some people want to flip the company right away and some people want to keep for a long time, if somebody has never experienced a medical device that goes straight down, you know, in spending before it goes back up, you know, they're going to freak out or they don't know how to deal with the FTA, which is uncontrollable. So get a board that has experience in your area there. Um, and then change the board as you grow. I mean, that's what they do on public board. They have what's called a government's group. And then you assess your board every year and then you change the board as you go. Now, in startup, it's a bit more complicated there because there is investor rights and you have to deal with that. But at the time, you can influence on the venture side 
who the right investor is representative on the board. And you should ask for that person. There are some VCs who are really fantastic, you know, so try to get those people there. So, so trust is important. No surprise. If you have bad news, don't try to say, oh, we don't make great, blah, blah. Oh, by the way, I need $2 million to meet payroll next week. That is a kiss of death. Talk to people ahead of time to say, here's the issue where we're going to decrease the burn rate. We're going to do this. We have another suggestion there. And then people are collaborative. I always tell people to say, have a flexible mindset versus a fixed mindset. And the, the difference between success and failure is being stubborn uh, or being persistent. And it's very hard to do it at the time of the decision. It's fine if you can't decide afterwards. So, so what you want is people give you perspective. And always as a mentor capitalist, I lift people up when they're depressed and I bring them down when they're manic. You know, you need somebody who basically helps you focus and temper. So the role of the board is very important and people are totally underestimate that. Very interesting. Um, and so, um, you know, we, we talked about some of the problems of certain market sectors. So I'll, I'll summarize that. But um, a lot of VCs put money into clinical decision support tools, and that's a very promising area. But uh, sort of the, the big EMRs have frequently proven difficult to work with, slow things down, uh, don't want you to sell direct to the buyer. They want you to, to work through them, but then you lose your purchase with the buyer. Um, uh, employer health tech companies that sell diabetes or other benefits to the employer. Um, that's been a, a, a very interesting sales market for a, a long time, but it seems to be overcrowded, over prospected, and we're not in a boom right now. In fact, there's a lot of layoffs by uh, progressive large employers and they, and the market has matured. And so those employers are looking to, to shift from best of breed or individual point solution to more of a suite and maybe even just spend less, squeeze down the value of the category, spend less on the category. And you mentioned the very welcome boom in Medicare Advantage followed by a bust in Medicare Advantage. Oh, we don't know. So, I mean, we, we just, it just happens. So we'll see what happens to Medicare Advantage. I hope these people are smarter and have a long-term horizon. But, you know, the question is, as people have to decrease spending, it has to come from someplace. And that's an easy target. We had the same thing in pharma. You mentioned pharma earlier. So a lot of the early companies like Genentech and Pfizer, and I'm talking 2012, 2015, they had a whole digital health department. They all got whacked. And then they basically said, because they had to save money somewhere, and that was an easy target. And then they just went to the product manager of the drug and they said, you go incorporate digital health, which fulfills nothing came out of that. So when you see, uh, you, you have to go back to say, who has the pain point problem that owns it? And these are the people that move the needle. And, and so, so in pharma, for example, if you go to somebody who says, I'm going to help you do your clinical trials faster with less people, with better data, you get a lot of attention. Um, if you go to pharma and he says, I'm going to give you access to the last mile, which is be able to reach out to the patients uh, in, a, in a non-advertising matters, but in more effective matters. They love that things too. We have some very successful company in the pharma slate, but it takes a while to get there. You have to build a trust. You have to show them that, you know, you're doing the right thing. I mean, they're very highly regulated, you know. So, so you have to understand, again, I go back to say, understand where your customer is coming from. The way you sell to a Medicare Advantage is very different than the way you sell to Kaiser is very different than you sell to, you sell to the VA. So get people to understand the space. It's a different animal. And, and we, we talked about the pharma tech budget, which, which is looking in today's environment, it looks like one of the spendier budgets, but um, what, are there any other areas that 
you know, a company that is a little struggling right now, you know, would look to for any other sort of budgets that have money pain points that uh, that are a focal point for for tech to solve problems that that, that you're um, that you're seeing in today's market. Well, we we, we have a lot of company coming up with um, uh, neurostimulation of the brain. I mean, and I truly believe that there is something there. The question is that which one is going to win? And then the business model is unclear. You know, if people have to go like twice a week for six weeks and then they have to pay for that and who's going to pay for that. And it's very clear that uh, CMS is saying, you know, we're not paying first. <laughs> we're being conservative. So really understanding to say who benefits, what do I have to do to prove it? If it takes three years of a thousand patients cohorts to prove it works, you better get investors who understand that alignment of interest. And, you know, that could be true, but then you're really talking digital therapeutics and very medical. If on the other hand, you could say, hey, I can decrease readmission to a hospital there for congestive heart failures, but I'm picking one, you know, that's easy to prove very in a short period of time. Uh, and then, so, so I think you have to really go to the basics of what is your problem? What's your value proposition? What do you have to do to prove for people to convince you? And then you have the early adopters who give you the benefit of the doubt and you have to get access to the data. You can use it. Not everybody allows you to do that. A lot of the pharma companies don't allow you to use their data with another pharma company with the providers that may be more willing to share. So really understanding how you build a business. It's a business architecture issue and that's, it's not building a product. So, that's great. Uh, thanks. So, um, and then, did you have more to say about lessons from failure uh, that, that you've uh, that you've seen out there? And for our audience, by the way, now's a great time for you to add, put any questions in the chat that you'd like for us to address. Um, but any lessons from failure that you've seen? Yeah, I mean, you know, there's a bit of a similarity with the dot com craziness, you know, where you could do no wrong and people were being thrown millions of dollars with no oversight and all of that, and they thought that was the normal thing. And now it's like you could do no right, even if you have a good product there and nobody wants to get you, get, get you money there. So, so I think you have to be honest with yourself to say, do I have the right product with the right market and the right time? Because unfortunately there's some luck in being in a startup there. And if you don't, you have to do what's called pivot. Pivot means you have to change your business, also changing your product. And there's, and you have to make sure you have enough runway so you can show that that new pivot is the right one there. So um, you have to understand right now the VC are doing the same thing they did during the dot-com. They're doing a their portfolio and they're triaging to three categories. Uh, this one will never make. And I only have a small amount of money, so I'll let them go. I won't support them. Uh, these are the ones I have so much money in 20, 30, 40 million dollars that I can't afford to lose them because my portfolio will never survive. And you have too big to fail, as we call it there. And so these ones are being supported there. And, and so you have to make sure you're not in the middle bucket, which is we don't know which way this one is going to go. Because if you have three VCs on the board and they each put you in different buckets there, you don't have support of your insiders. And this is the big problem we saw during the dot-com or the medical device fiasco in 20, 2008. And I see a tiny bit of that right now happening in medical devices. Not much in health tech because there's a lot of money still shopping around, but medical devices is, is a much smaller market of, of investors there. So, and then the other, the other thing, uh, for people there is that your job is to motivate your employees. And your employees are all freaking out right now. When you sniff, they think you have pneumonia, so everything gets amplified. And, and the, the lessons I learned when things get tough is you're going to be very surprised who is a missionary versus a mercenary. I mean, uh, the, the missionary is a person who really believe in your mission there and they're going to go with you for all the pains and the ups and downs and all the horror stories there. Um, the mercenary, they're going to change. 
jump ship. They're going to go to some of the startups, you know, because they think they can get stock options that are going to be above price. So really look at your management team and really identify who is at risk. And if they're at risk, you better have some backup to make sure you don't end up with your CFO leaving or, you know, uh, VP of sales just jumping around. They usually are the first to target leaving them. And make sure you're transparent with them, but, you know, but don't freak them out either. Because when you say that there's problem there, they're going to think it's worse than you're disclosing there. So transparency and trust with not only your investor, but your employees are critical as you're going through tough times. So, um, uh, so we want to leave some time for questions, I thought, but I didn't see any. The, uh, so um, what about the topic? I've, I've heard you speak before about sort of failing for the wrong reasons. What are the wrong reasons, the, the foreseeable reasons uh, that, that, you know, it'd be embarrassing to fail for those reasons or whatever? Can you, can you go through some, some thoughts about failing for the wrong reasons? Yeah, I mean, I'll give you my personal experience there. So I launched post Symmetry worldwide a long, long time ago. And at the time, the company could not sell the product, which is hard to believe nowadays because it's everywhere. But they basically, they were there to say, these are the features. We measure oxygen saturation non-invasively. And people say, I don't care because if I'm an anesthesiologist and I want to do a diagnosis, I will have PO2, pH, electrolytes and all that. I've got much more information than that. And my contribution to mankind is to say, congratulations, doctor. Now you know why the patient died and why you're going to get sued, more politely than that. And really, as I said, you know, you go back to say, we were selling a hypoxemia detector to make sure the patient didn't die and the, and the, and the, the physician gets sued. And they had happened to have an anesthesia malpractice insurance with a cap of a million dollars. So you just need one in a lifetime. As long as you educate them gently to say, it's not your fault. It statistically can happen to anybody. 94% of the time, a human error is not a machine breaking down. It can happen to you. Then suddenly it became obvious there and now it's everywhere. So, but initially they couldn't sell the product. Same product, we're great, you know. But so I go back to say, what do you do for them? Uh, so I see a lot of good company who are selling the technology, but not the solution and adapting that story in the value proposition for each of the key stakeholders there. The other big problem I have seen, and the Valley is full of those, where they develop the product with the early adopters. So in the traditional medical devices, we work with academic centers, the Stanford, UCSF, the Mass General there. And we work with the big academic people there who give you all the incredible things they need to. That is not what the people at Sutter and Kaiser want. And that's the market. The market is the large community hospitals there. So it's really important that as you, under medtech, that you, 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 you get the adoption of the key opinion leaders there, but you, you still see a focus on what is the market need for the mass market. In health tech, it's a little bit different. I would say the biggest mistake you could make is to go to a big academic there because you are trying to change healthcare workflows. And the workflow at Stanford has nothing to do with the workflow of a community hospital there. So I always tell entrepreneurs on the health tech digital side there, so go work with the Sutter and the Dignity and all those guys because that's your market. Then you figure out what that is, and maybe at some time you get a big name from, 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 from Stanford to validate, you know, your medical, medical claim there. So really understanding, you know, what is your business model there? And, and, and then the big mistake I saw in the last two years is that people basically went to the VC to say, Hey, I'm really a serious B here. I've sold a million dollars of it. I know how to do it. I just need a ton of money and I'm going to basically take off like a rocket. And guess what? The hands that he did the business model. So there was a fantastic uh, uh, panel years ago on three major name company who failed. The big name, you recognize them. 
and they each basically blamed the investor, which I thought was easy, but, but, but they basically said they forced it to scale up when we hand fully validated the pricing, the sales process, and then the, all the features of the products. And then if you have it wrong, you basically collapse. Uh, so, so I see a lot of that. And then there's a misalignment between investor types. So a lot of the tourist tech investor came in with the expectation this was going to be exploding sales. And of course, healthcare never explodes. Plus in certain cases, the FDA gets involved. So it gets lower and totally unrealistic launch expectation. I mean, I remember having a board discussion there where they're going to zero to $15 million. They said, this will never happen. It's a great product, but it will never happen. But they start spending like they're going to get to $50 million and they didn't. And then they run out of cash. So, so, I mean, these are some of the lessons I have learned. Uh, you know, there's more, but I'm just, you know, don't want to overwhelm the group here. And goodbye. I, I see Hallie Tucker was there. Hello, Hallie. Hello, uh, Hallie. And uh, so Hallie mentions, and so Hallie is the founder of Rock Health and helped to um, give new meaning to the term digital health. Uh, uh, and she's mentioning the Rock Health CEO Summit in March. So... I think that's definitely noteworthy, worth going to. It's usually in San Francisco. It's, pro it's probably in San Francisco this year. Um, but CEO is going to have more questions than ever. And this will be a peer group, you know, um, uh, curated and moderated by Rock Health uh, as to what to do in the current uh, environment um, in this sort of year of reckoning. So uh, that, that's really great. I, I, uh, so uh, for our audience, uh, you know, that's definitely worth uh, for CEOs of young companies to, to go to that. Um, and we, we had a couple people and say, this is very flattering, say, do you have a blog? Can I read your blog or can I read someone else talking about these topics? Uh, and so do, do you have that? Is there a place people can go to, to read about these issues? Um, uh, well, interesting enough, I have a YouTube channel called An Insight, A-N-N-E Insights, which right now was just the COVID sessions there when the market went crazy and people were asking what to do. I basically put together this video. There's like 80 of them. And I was thinking to repurpose that channel, you know, in providing some of these short videos like what we're having today and, and then posting them. So, um, and then if you go to the healthtechcapital.com, uh, if you click on the resource, you know, which is on the right side there, there's a whole bunch of podcasts I've been doing recently there. And some of them are, are, are some really nice clips there that, you know, there's quite a bit of resource there. Uh, that's great. Um, so, um, uh, I another... see a question here about the messaging selling to health plan. Oh my gosh, that's a that's a really long conversation. But um, um, let me see. Uh, a lot of the problem I see is that the health plan uh, there's Medicare Advantage, which is different than uh, the traditional commercial payers, and the, the way they're looking at things are different. So Medicare Advantage they keep you for 15 years on the average. So the, so the way they're looking for is that they're, they're willing to invest today to basically save money over time. The commercial payers, they only keep you on the average two and a half years. That's because people change employment or the employers change the insurance there. So they want an ROI in less than one year. Um, and, and so that's the first difference. The second one is that the, the Medicare Advantage is much more concentrated, you know, where the traditional commercial payers, there's a lot of layers and like you said, the virtual calls and all those other players there. Uh, my experience that I've seen is that they usually want to see engagement and that's your pilot. Can you engage people there? And the bar is really low. It has to be at least 5%. That tells you how bad it is. There's such a bad relationship between the members and the commercial plans that 5% is the trigger. But then people are having these huge drop-off rates. So now it says, do you keep them engaged at three, six, nine months? 
Do you get them to change behavior in such a way it's measurable into the only thing that a plan cares for, which is uh, saving money? Well, how do you prove you save money? ER visit, that's a high bar. I mean, you know, not everybody goes to the ER multiple times a year. You know, maybe if you have COPD, but other cases, people rarely go to the ER. Number of visits and hospitalization. Again, these are several cases there. So how do you measure the impact you have? Uh, that's a question you should ask yourself uh, because at some time, if you want a long-term contract, you're going to have to talk about that. And then over time, it's very clear that people want you to go at risk. So if you go at risk, you better have a data set to know how to calculate your risk because otherwise you may end up pricing yourself at the wrong level there. And of course, they won't, they won't easily change their, your pricing if you got it wrong. So, so, so I, I highly recommend that you have the right people with the right experience there. Um, it's very difficult to get their attention. They get inundated by a startup knocking on their doors. So having somebody who has experience, uh, there are some um, payers, venture capitalists that you should talk to, and that's a fantastic way. Very often they want you to have been deployed in their plans. There's a chicken and egg problem there before they invest. But if you can get through that phase there, uh, they are fantastic at the board level. I'm, we're lucky we have a couple of company in that situation there, and the value they add at the board is fantastic because they talk the voice of the customer. So it's uh, the payers is complicated. <laughs> um, so we have another question. It looks like from from Zan. Uh, Let's see, um, any comments on business models that take a percent of cost savings generated for payers? Um, um, I, I think it looks great on paper and as an intellectual discussions to implement it practically is very, very, very difficult. First of all, it may take a one or two year delay for you to get the data to do the analysis. So think about when you're gonna get paid. Number two, they don't want to share with you their population cohorts and all the details. So they're coming back. That happened to one of our companies. They came back to say, well, we think you save money there, but we don't think it's because of you. Because in our population, the way we do the math, it's different. I said, well, can you share? I said, no, we don't. It's a very difficult conversation to have because this is their secret database. So it's a different thing to implement. Um, and so I think to start that way is very dangerous because you don't even know what the the courts are the subpopulation of that. And they don't care about the population of America. They talk about their population, which may have high Medicaid, you know, maybe different population groups, depending on part of the country they're in. They may have a higher COPD case, like in the Detroit area than other places. So uh, so it's very difficult to have a scalable business model. My experience in the early days of OmniCell, I can say that, is that we had I had two pricing in my left or right, right pocket of my jacket. One is to say, we're going to charge you five, X millions of dollars for, you know, the big deployment of this and that. And they, oh my gosh, Allah. And I said, yeah, but we could save you Z, Z millions of dollars. And I, and, and I said, okay, well, if you go at risk, here's the number. But if we are right, and we've been right in every other company before, and this is the database we have shown we have been right in the past, that will cost you X plus 3 million. And they always went for the flat fee. So it's a way for negotiating, but it's a very difficult way to implement. Because now you need to get access to the data, analyze, you're going to get different interpretation. You guess on their population or the incidence or the type of cases they have is going to be all over the map. And it's out of your control. So very hard to implement. I found an interesting, um, slightly similar example to that, which is in the world of programmatic benefits sold to the benefit leaders at progressive large employers, um, 
uh, the the vendors would want to sell in some sort of fixed price basis. Uh, so per member per month or per user per month, and they would be guaranteed that revenue in. And then the, um, uh, the the benefit leaders would went through a phase where they were trying to challenge this. And they were saying, I, I don't want to pay a fixed amount out and then have nobody use it and not see the benefit in. And so you know, can you show, can you be at risk as a vendor? Can you be at risk? And if you perform better, then you'll get more reward. Um, and then after a while, the, the, the benefit leaders stopped doing this because they wanted their expenses to be fixed. They didn't, if, if you're the benefit leader and you report to the head of HR who reports to the CFO, um, you don't want to say that our um, ability to curb hospital emergency rooms we, we visits went that that was a we had a, a strong performance there, but we paid a whole lot more to this vendor as a result. Um, uh, or uh, you know the, the, the other examples uh, of that, but they, they they didn't want a surprise of 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 uh, extra fees charged at the level of the vendor, and so they went back to the fixed contract uh, uh, from that. So you, it, it sometimes you get you get buyers will say, we'll prove it and we'll share the risk. And then they actually don't want to share the risk at the end of the day. So, Yeah, that's my experience also there. If you remember, uh, I think it was Livongo, if my memory is right, who basically was successful there because they didn't really invent any technology, if you think about it. But they went to the employers to say, we're going to basically get your flat fee for your diabetic population there. And they love that because they want a fixed budget. This is not, I mean, the, the employers, their purpose is not to manage your health. Their purpose is to sell whatever product and widget is their main core business, and they happen to support you. And that's a, that's a, that's only in America, by the way. All the other countries in the world, healthcare is managed by the governments or, or private insurance. It's nothing to do with the employers. So my experience is that you know you may get like a bonus or maybe a negotiation for the next year contract that's different and something like that based on outcome, but they want a fixed cost budget. So they, they you know say so it's in their budget, it's locked. They'll see if you deliver, you know, they may not renew your contract if you didn't deliver. But 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 having this fluctuation payment there by quarter assessment and population, this and that, it's not worth a hassle. It's not the core purpose in life. A provider is different because the providers, that's their purpose in life, you know, is to deliver care. But the employer, that's not their main purpose in life. Um, and then it's really hard to get hold of those people. This, I mean, you know, I mean, I remember talking to somebody who used to run Walmart, you know, this is probably the biggest population of employees. And she said, even Walmart didn't have the power to negotiate with the providers. And they were trying to do at risk. If you remember, Walmart tried to do this at risk payment there that if you had like, I'm trying to remember like knees and open heart surgery and all of that, they had these best provider centers anyway like Mayo Clinic and Cleveland Clinic. I mean these were real fantastic places. And they were if you agreed to basically go there, they, they fly your family with you, it's a flat fee, they waive the deductible and all of that. And and you know, they didn't really have the leverage. Even Walmart had a problem doing that. So so how can you as a little startup, you know, move that that huge mountain? So um Jagruti asks um you know where where do you see the opportunity for AI software companies in healthcare? Well, I'm going to be a contrarian because that's how I've always done well. And I, I think that to do the clinical decision support, which is very sexy, sells a lot of newspaper, is the worst part. Uh, I mean, for me, you go back to the bread and butter of life, which is if you're removing 
problem I have in my workflow, and that's my back end. And my workflow is the nurse, with the pharmacist, the, how can I maximize the scheduling of my MRI because it's a high fixed cost capital equipment there. Always that goes basically helping delivering the existing care better. Uh, you're going to be much more successful than trying to figure out how you're going to repla- not, not replace a doctor, but help the doctor make the right decision, which has a, a lot of issue there. But where's the content? How do you make the right algorithms? And remember, IBM Watson spent a fortune in doing clinical decision support. And I asked somebody from MD Anderson who had spent like $30 million, you know, with their program to say, how successful was that software? Uh, for pro- and, and cancer is complicated. So I mean, if you figure it's a good application, it's a 50% predictability of the right protocol. I mean, it was useless. And, and the reason is because garbage in, garbage out. The, the quality of the data to train these algorithms is terrible. And, and, and so, 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 so I, I think, you know, if you're a startup, you have one shot on goal, you know, get something that nobody pays attention to, you know, case okay, so OmniCell and Pixis, that was delivery of drugs. Nobody cared about that. It turns out to be a big money maker. Take, take away hassles is much more successful than to tell you to do a better job. So, uh, and uh, let's see, um, uh, Jaguti, so I'll, I'll mention that uh, I've been part of some, some debates where a lot of people, when it comes to generative AI, which has been very prominent for 18 months or so, and where it would work in healthcare, um, the, a lot of people have been debating uh, and endorsing the idea that it could be very useful on both sides of the billing issue, believe it or not. This is a very American discussion. You take the world's biggest new technology, you apply it to hospitals trying to bill more optimally and then to payers trying to reject more optimally. Um, And so you've got these these, big muscular robots on either side wrestling uh, uh, and that that's an area where uh, generative AI, by looking at the entire medical record, uh, and coming up with a, a solution faster than a typical uh, coder would, and then being blessed by a coder and sent over to the payers. That's that's one area I know people are tackling. Also, prior authentication and, and billing and other issues like that. Um, people are are using generative AI uh, and its its interpretation of the medical record um, to do better and faster than humans. So that's one intriguing area. Um, and, and that you could put that more also in the area of revenue cycle management as well. Um, so uh, I think one intriguing opportunity with AI actually has to do with the fact that coders can really use, I'm sorry, software coders, not healthcare billing coders, but software coders can really use AI to code faster. Uh, you can have a smaller team do more coding. And so I think that there are interesting vulnerabilities of electronic medical records vendors, record cycle management vendors, uh, payer claims processing vendors, where someone can come along and build a new version suited to certain kinds of, of care uh, better, faster, um, they, uh, with a, a new code base, basically, and, and perhaps cherry pick customer bases, pick the most profitable possible customer base and build a version just for them. And an example of this is, is say, modernizing medicine which isn't necessarily using AI, but they went and built an, an all SaaS based EMR for dermatology. And there was a reason why um, that, that it was very well suited. And then the same kind of platform was very well suited to emergency departments and, um, and urgent care centers. And so, uh, but they built the code from scratch. And so I think there's, we're, we're at the precipice of an ability of software vendors 
to do this for many parts of healthcare, the most valuable parts of healthcare, to rebuild it from scratch using the latest best code, perhaps for more of a fee-for-value environment when the old stuff was built for a fee-for-service environment, or cherry-picking the most, um, the highest margin, highest dollar value subsectors of healthcare. I think that's so. Yep. I go, I go back. You know, the dermatology, and I don't know them well, is that they basically there was an unmet need, which is a traditional EMR were not were too rigid for that application, and they probably put a new layer that was much better meeting the needs of the dermatologist, and as a result of that, the interface on the back end, you know, with the rest of the system. I think it's going to be a lot of those, but it goes back to what I said earlier. What is the problem you're fixing? And for each specialty, it could be different, and and you know, and so. Uh, so, so I, I think the challenge is AR by itself is like the internet, and I've lived that one there. Internet was going to fix everything, and you know, ninety percent of them died. <laughs> so, so AI is just an enabler to allow you to do something you could not do otherwise. And by the way, clever story with modernizing medicine. So, they were the first EMR that was uh, iPad only. Um, so uh, clinicians had the iPad and it turns out with dermatologists, part of their workflow is that you have, you have a, a blank drawing of a human body and part of their workflow is to note on the human body where the mole is or where the, the, uh, the, the, the skin issue is. If you think about it, that makes all the sense in the world for dermatology. And so, uh, the, and, and, Traditional EMRs were terrible for this. You, you wound up with your electronic record and then a piece of paper, and someone had to scan that piece of paper. Um, and so, with the with with the, the iPads, they had a touch screen, so you could actually um, build into the workflow. And then other parts were simpler than other parts of medicine, and so everything could be done with the finger, including the diagram of the human body, with you know marking where the the the, the moles were or whatever. So. Um, and, and there'll be special stories. Uh, and then SAS also just was, was a better option for clinical practices that didn't want to have to think about standing up their own data center and their own instance of software and updating it. Um, so, um, but I think, I think AI has the chance to be a bigger disruption than SAS. Um, so, uh, uh, well, that's great. So, um, uh, the, uh, oh, that, that, that's uh, modernizing medicine was the um, clinicians walking around with iPads. And, th and that turns out in emergency departments and, uh, and urgent care, they're also, they're walking around a lot. They're not necessarily sitting in, in exam rooms. And so having an iPad on you um, is, is, uh, is useful in those settings as well. So. Yeah. I mean, it's like uh, the hospitalist in the hospitals, they don't have an office. Yeah. yeah. So it goes back to what I said earlier, understand the need. The radiologist needs is very different than the hospitalist need is different than the dentist, you know, um, you know, and so so people have the ability of developing a solution to meet their needs uh, in a niche market, as opposed Epic and all of that went horizontal. They said, we're going to dominate the world on the back end. I think what AI will allow you to be on top of that. I mean, we're not going to get rid of a Epic. They own the place, but you can basically be on top of it. And I think the government forced them not to collaborate. Well, that that's great. Well, so any anything else uh, for our audience before we, we uh, wind up the show? I think it's to be an entrepreneur is a wonderful journey. It's very addictive. Uh, I think that the keys when you are at the bottom and you want to give up, get, get a sanity check from somebody else to give you a perspective. And when you think you're going to conquer the moon, <laughs> get a reality check to bring you back down to earth. You know, it, it's, it, it takes a village. So build a village to support you. That's great. Thank you. Isn't that what was on uh, King Solomon's ring was uh, this too shall pass um, was the... Uh, uh, 
uh, I think. Yeah, uh, so. I mean, but remember, you know, as an entrepreneur, you know, you have that happening to you every day. <laughs> yeah. You have the ups and downs every day there, so you have to handle the roller coaster and, and get addicted to it. So. Well, good luck, That's everybody. Good. Uh, you know, I hope this was helpful. Well, yeah, thank you. Uh, so you've been listening to Digital Health Investor Talk with host Stephen Wardell and our guest, Andy Geist. Our next show is Wednesday, February 7th. The topic is the emergence of solutions aggregators with guest Michael Pace. For a Boston audience, I hope to see you at our next Digital Health Drinks Night on Thursday, February 15th, 530 to 830 um, at the Millennium uh, uh, Winthrop Place in downtown Boston. Uh, you can register for future events at stephenwardell.eventbrite.com. Um, and uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Stephen Wardell. And Anne, how, how can people best follow you? That is a very good question there. I mean, uh, I, I do put blogs, but I'm not very active on healthtechcapital.com. I, ha I do post podcasts and videos I've done in the past under the resource tab, if you look on the right there. And then take a look at my insights. Now you're motivating me to do little clips there on my insights on YouTube. So move, move away from COVID. <laughs> but if you want to learn about COVID, there's a ton of things there, especially if you know anybody who has long COVID, uh, which is unfortunately a catastrophe for people. So. Great. Um, well, thank you. And I'll see our audience next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you.